A quick editorial note before we start the episode. Uh, once again, this is my final episode hosting Bat Books for Beginners. Uh, Dylan's final episode was last month, and we would like to thank Dustin and the BatmanUniverse.net for the opportunity to host this podcast, and we wish the new hosts all the best and hope you enjoy them as much as you enjoyed our version of the show. Uh, one more thing before we begin. There is a survey on the BatmanUniverse.net. Uh, if you go onto the main page and scroll down a little bit, on the right side it says, please provide us feedback. If you take that survey, you can tell Dustin and the folks at the BatmanUniverse.net exactly what type of content you would like to see them produce so that they can give you the best Batman content out there and make the BatmanUniverse.net that much better of a site for you to visit uh, regularly. And without further ado, we're going to begin the episode. Enjoy! A great philosopher of the internet once said, Always be yourself, unless you can be Batman. Always be Batman. While neither of us are Terry McGinnis and will likely never be Batman, we can live vicariously through him in his many comic adventures. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners, episode 149, Unresolved Targets from the Gotham Central comic book line. And my name is John, and with me is Tobias Panchin again from View from the Gutters. He's back to talk about more Gotham Central. Thanks for having me once again. Merry Christmas. <laughs> yes, this is our December issue, uh, episode, and not intentionally, the first part of this takes place at Christmas time. Let's let's call it a cosmic coincidence. Yeah, the cosmic cube. Although that's Marvel. Uh it's it's Metatron's fault. Or Metron. Oh, is that a DC the, version? The the new god. Okay. Met, I think it's I think it's Metron. It yeah. probably is. I, the really the only new god I'm really familiar with is Darkseid. I know there's others. Darkseid, yeah. I say Darkseid cuz it's E I D. Right, but Jack Kirby was Jewish and that is um I don't. I don't know that it's a word specifically, but for example, my my grandfather's name was Sidemen, spelled S E I D. Okay, well that it's, may that, it's a it's a little visual pun, I guess. That that I'll start calling him Darkseid then. I I thought that people were just being weird. Yeah, a lo, you know, a lot of people do say Dark Seed, but as far as I'm aware, it is Dark Side. I mean, I've heard both. Um, and uh, complete aside. Uh, for those people who've been watching Game of Thrones or reading the books, um, it's Baratheon for the king's name. Oh yeah, Robert Baratheon. Right. I read that as Baratheon forever. Yeah, and I, did I even the exact said it, same thing. Said it to people, and they're like, "It's Baratheon," and I'm like, "Well, at this point, the TV show hadn't come out. It was just the books and the board game." And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, "How do you know?" It could be Baratheon, and then yeah. the show came out, and it was Baratheon. I'm like, well, I'm wrong. <laughs> well, I don't think that you can always necessarily take the show as, you know, 100% voice of God canon. But I think this this is, in the case of Darkseid, it's much more akin to the drow-drow argument from fantasy gaming. In the sense that there is a very specific, correct way to say that, and it's drow. Anybody who says it's Dro is wrong. I'm sorry. You just are. I 
I'm, I'm aware of that just very tangentially. I never really ran anybody who said drow. Everyone said drow. I, I've run into some drow, um, although th- this is a complete aside at this point, but I've been playing in a game where the game master loves to make awful, awful puns. And so there are drow, but there are also drows who act like bros. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And um, buggalos that are bugbear juggalos. This sounds like my my DM for for my game. Who we thought he was just mispronouncing this. He had us looking for pirates. We thought we were looking for pirates. They were literally rats whose tails were on fire like a pyre. Oh, okay. So not rats that looked like pies. No, pyre rats. Oh. And we thought he was just saying pirates weird, weirdly. Nope, they they were rats whose tails were on fire like a pyre. Beautiful. Yeah. All right, aside, aside, aside. Yes, aside, uh, aside. We will start the episode with uh, Education Alley, as we normally do. Um, and I caught this just today, actually, that there is some context to the Christmas time part of this story called Soft Targets, where the Beltway sniper attacks which were a series of coordinated shootings that took place over three weeks in October 2002 in Maryland, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. That was one year before this story was published. And uh, they were uh, captured or tried, I believe, like three months before this story was published. So it is very much probably in, well, it was in the public consciousness. Something very topical, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if that influenced this or not, but... um, Ten people were killed during this, and three other victims were critically injured in several locations throughout Washington, D.C. metropolitan area and along Interstate 95 in Virginia, which is not very far away. The rampage was perpetrated by John Allen Muhammad, then age 42, and Lee Boyd Malvo, then 17. Their crimes began in February 2002 with murders and robberies in multiple states, which resulted in seven deaths and seven injuries, bringing the 10-month shooting spree total to 17 deaths and 10 injuries. And as I said, in September 2003, Muhammad was sentenced to death, and one month later, Malvo was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. On November 10, 2009, Muhammad was executed by lethal injection at the Greenville Correctional Center near Jarrett, Virginia. So a little bit of context for a possible um, influence to the first part of this story. Uh, And we'll jump in here to issue 12. So there's a reference in this issue to Hub City as the most corrupt police force. And this is where Vic Sage, also known as The Question, hails from. It's also the home city of Ted Cord, who was the second Blue Beetle. And the one who's currently active at this point in DC Publishing. Yes. Although... Jaime Reyes is coming back as part of Rebirth, which is something that will be happening between when we record this and when this episode's released. Yeah, it'll be a few months out at at the point this episode releases, but at the time we're recording, it has not happened yet. Um, Sarge was asking for the CSU kids, also in issue 12, um, and I found the acronym CSU meant Community Safety Unit, um, which made sense because they were trying to clear an area and, and that would be a unit that would be helpful with that. Keeping yeah. the community safe. We also have reiterations of the words SCAL and the acronym QRT. 
Skell is a slang term for criminals that was used often in noir stories in the 40s and 50s. And QRT is a quick response team, which is also called uh, the SWAT team, Special Weapons and Tactics. Yeah, and that depends on what each uh, city wants to call that particular team. They kind of alternate between between the two and this is these are both terms that came up in our last episode about gotham central so you can look to our longer discussion on that yeah that would be uh, episode 144 back in july uh red ball is a term the a new term also is in issue 12 and this is the situation with the two high profile shootings a red ball is slang for a high profile case that draws media and political attention which it was the mayor and uh school commissioner i believe uh, i'm not sure if that was one school or the school district i think it would be the school district i would presume that it was the superintendent of the school district um i did not realize that that was a common term i assumed that it had something to do with the movie and short story minority report um written by phil dick where they at least in the movie i haven't read the story they they have pre-crime, crimes that have been predicted by powerful psychics, and the crime is carved onto a ball that is colored one of several different colors, red balls being murders. I, I completely did not make that connection until you reminded me, and when you started talking about Minority Report, I'm like, what's the red ball? What's the- Oh, yeah, that's where my mind went immediately, and I have no idea if that was intentional or not, because I've never I, heard of this term outside of that. I want to say that the the filmmakers knew of the term red ball and that and that was just a quick visual clue for those of us who knew about it, which apparently was neither of us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in issue 13, the deputy mayor is compared to the cowardly lion forgot to pick up his courage from the wizard. So if you're not familiar with the Wizard of Oz, that is a reference to the cowardly lion who's going to the Emerald City of Oz to get courage. Which is, if I remember right, a piece of paper. Ultimately, yeah. I mean, he's given a diploma or something to that effect. Oh, no. He's given a crown and a cape. That's right. It's the scarecrow who's given the diploma, the piece of paper. And the Tin Man's given a uh, mechanical ticking heart. Yep. A a little clock that ticks like a heart beating. Well, and it's in the shape of a heart. Yep. Yeah. Thank you, visual metaphors. <laughs> and that's, of course, the movie version. The uh, book has slightly slight differences. Right. Which was a $500,000 question on who wants to be a millionaire back when that was popular of uh, what color were Dorothy's shoes in the book? Silver. Yeah. And I was so excited I knew that because I, as we spoke on the last Gotham Central and I got to gush over Bobby Fischer and chess, Wizard of Oz was one of those things as a child that I read all the bomb books. I have a nice uh, leather-bound uh, three-volume collection of that now as an adult that I tried to go back and read once, and it's a little difficult to read as an adult, but as a kid, yeah. I loved reading those books. I never read them myself. My mother read many of them to me as a child, and we kind of got bogged down around the ninth or tenth one out of, I think, something like 13 that Baum personally wrote, and then there right. were a number more that were written by other people. And I have not read any of those, but I have read all 13 of the bomb books. Um, and the ancillary tales that are included in this three-volume set, I have never read. Um, I didn't know they existed back then, uh, but they were in this three-volume set. So I have them if I ever decide to go back and try and read them. Um, yeah, my, my only memory is that they were really good at first and then kind of slowed down and got a little bit repetitive towards the end. I would definitely say the first three are 
are very I very highly recommend to any yeah, absolutely. If you've never read the Wizard of Oz books, if your only piece of familiarity with them is the movie from 39, highly recommend checking it out. Yeah, and if you've seen Return to Oz, which was the 80s, I want to say Disney put it out, um, it is an amalgamation of book two and book three. So if you like those elements, that they're uh, in book two and book three. And I believe that stars a very young Feruza Balk. That's highly possible. I don't remember anyone who's in it. I just remember watching it and thinking it was weird and also having read the books, being very frustrated that it was an amalgamation of both books and not how I pictured it when I read them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, moving on, also in issue 13, the rifle mentioned is a Steyr Manlicker. I hope I said that right. Manlicker. Leaker? Leaker, probably. Uh, SSG-69. The SSG stands for Scharfschutzengier? Scharfschutzengiver. That's a V. Giver. Excuse me. Uh, This is a bolt-action sniper rifle, which serves as the standard sniper rifle for the Austrian Army. Adopted in 1969, hence the model number, it was ahead of its time in the use of synthetics and cold hammer-forged barrels for durability. It's also used by many police departments, including BORTAC, the United States Border Patrol. And in 2015, Steyr has decided to end production of the SSG-69. Yep, so you can't get a new one anymore, but I'm sure there are many of them floating around because of Army and police usage. Uh, In issue 14, we have reference to the Palladium. This is... uh, referenced as a building in in the story um there's a number of definitions for palladium that don't involve a building but uh there is a concert hall and later a nightclub in new york city called the palladium that was active in the 1980s and 90s there is also a theater in la called the hollywood palladium and andrew lloyd weber owns the london palladium i thought those were the most interesting of the palladium named buildings which much like the tino's bar that we talked about in episode 144 there are palladiums in many, many, many cities. I just picked some of the highlights. Cool. Uh, also in that issue, a gun dealer references the twins that just went legal. And this is a reference to Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen. Which, and if you're not our ages, probably would have went right over your head. But um, that was a big deal for those of us that graduated around the year 2000. Because we were about the same age as they were. And so they were... Uh, uh, this was in 2003. Yeah, I'm just I'm trying to think back. I mean, I was a fan of Full House, the series that they were on as infants and young children way the heck back. Um, but I don't know that I actually put two and two together and realized that's who they were talking about reading this series. I immediately went to look it up because it struck me as the right time for that to be talking about them from what I remember in college of it being... One of those, I mean, social media wasn't what it is now, would be one of those trending things of... We didn't oh, even have MySpace back then. Yeah, we did. Did we? That was right around the time MySpace was as big as it, as it got, because My memory, Facebook was just on the verge of coming out in the early oh, you 2000s. you know what? You're right. Because I had a MySpace, right. and um, I got into it a little bit late, which was about 2005, I want to say. That's right around when I was getting into it in 2004 and 2005. Back in 2003, I was still on LiveJournal. Yeah, I remember that in college. I remember I had a few friends that had a live journal or a dead journal, and Ugh. Zanga was the one that, that someone sucked me into in college. 
I found out about Zanga in 2005, and at that time, it was more populated by like middle schoolers and high schoolers. As most of these stories go, it was a girl who had a Zanga and got me to get a Zanga. Yeah, that's basically what happened was there, there was a girl I wanted to talk to and she was on Zanga. So I signed up for Zanga and used it for about a month. I lasted a little bit longer because it was in college. So I had a few years to hang out with that person. So Yeah. Uh, and just as another little side note, if you are one of the people who is not aware of this, the Scarlet Witch from the Marvel movies, Elizabeth Olsen, is Mary-Kate and Ashley's younger sister. And I was not aware of that until about a week ago when someone mentioned it, and I'm like, well, there is a resemblance, and the name fits. I did not know that. Yep. Because Olsen's a fairly common name. Oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, that's that's why I'm mentioning it, because it's not something that's immediately obvious. Yeah, so there's your a little bit of Marvel trivia to go with the DC stuff we've been uh, sharing with you. Uh we have a reference to P.T. Barnum, who, uh, when the, the Joker's gang's lawyer is compared to P.T. Barnum. And uh, he was an American showman and businessman remembered for the promoting celebrated hoaxes and for founding the Barnum and Bailey Circus. He is often miscredited with the phrase, there's a sucker born every minute. Now, see, I always thought that that was his. I, I, a lot of people did. Um, I read that on the internet, so take that for what, what it's worth. Is he actually responsible for This Way to the Egress? Maybe. I don't remember so seeing that this, in what I read. This is an infinite or infamous story that there were signs saying, This Way to the Egress, This Way to the Egress. Egress means exit. And so basically he, had, he tricked people into thinking that they were going to go see something interesting. And really, he was showing them the way out, so they would have to pay to come back in again. Ooh, that is uh, nefarious. Yeah, that's crafty. I am not aware of, of uh, that. I did not run across that in my reading. I, I've heard that accredited to Barnum. I do not know if it is true. Yeah, I can't confirm or deny. Uh, in issue 15, we have ESU evacuating the to- toy stores. ESU stands for Emergency Services Unit, which, again, makes sense. Be the uh, paramedics, police, uh, fire, that sort of thing. So they're helping with crowd control. Yep. Uh, and in issue 20, the case board has Dashiell Hammett's name on it. And if you've ever listened to my show, View from the Gutters, you've probably heard Dashiell Hammett's name shouted a few times. He is the author of The Maltese Falcon, one of the most famous hard-boiled detective novels, and a big influence on Ed Brubaker's writings. Um, there's the word pros mentioned uh, in the, the phrase is no pros in her right mind. And uh, I completely could not figure out that phrase until I looked up pros, which has a number of meanings. And I'm pretty sure that that is slang for a prostitute in this sense, because that fits with the sentence uh, better than any of the other definitions of yeah, pros. That was my assumption just off the bat was that it was a simple abbreviation. Well, the extra S is what threw me off. Like, well, one S, I might have figured it out, but then it looks like prose. So I, I can see why they add the extra S. Yeah. They're, they're definitely going more for pronunciation rather than what we would say as strict spelling. Yeah. It just, one of those things that I, it didn't make any sense to me. And so I wrote it down and looked it up. And then it probably seems like common sense to everybody else but me. Um, uh, we also have quite a few creators referenced as Bri- Bridges, Streets, Buildings, and the Caseboard in the GCPD. Uh, we have Bob Kane, co-creator of Batman, Archie Goodwin, Frank Miller, who wrote Year One in the Dark Knight Returns, Bill Finger, the other co-creator of Batman, 
Mark Doyle, Batman Group Editor, Matt Idelson, Batman Editor, Nachi Castro, Batman Editor. Uh, Nachi's reference I found the most interesting. He had an orchestra playing at the Iceberg Lounge. Ooh. Uh, we also have Dan DiDio, the writer slash co-publisher of DC Comics, Ed Brubaker, who is one of the writers of this book, uh, Darwin Cook, may he rest in peace, uh, who is an artist who passed away very recently as of the time of this recording, worked on Catwoman, Dark End of the Street that we covered in April, or that John covered. Uh, me and Kit. Kit joined oh, me for that Oh, look at that. Um, another view from the gutter's host. Uh, Judd Winnick, who's a writer, most recently as of... Well, most recently, he did Batwing, the series, for 15 issues and the first 12 issues of New 52, Catwoman. Uh, Scott Dunbeer, executive editor of Wildstorm. And Trina Robbins, first woman to draw Wonder Woman in 1986. Also, she designed the costume for Vampirella in 1969. And a personal story on that, I ran into her at Denver Comic Con last year. We were in the... uh, We had media credentials, as we do again this year. And we were in the like lounge area thing that had some like craft services and stuff. I mean, not like you would see on a movie production, but Cokes, Pepsis, fruit, all that stuff. And she came in to ha- eat her lunch there and sat at the same table as us. And I didn't know who she was. I just, someone said, she created Vampirella. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. And we just had a casual conversation. Since I really didn't know anything about her, I didn't ask her anything about her work or anything like that. She's just a nice, pleasant lady. So it took 45 years for a woman to draw Wonder Woman? Apparently. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and there is one more creator that's referenced in this uh, arc. Roberg was Shelley Bond's maiden name. You remember may know Shelley Bond as the recently dismissed CEO of Vertigo Comics. She was hired as an assistant editor by Karen Berger one month after Vertigo was formed in 1993 and she worked her way up to CEO until the position was eliminated in 2016. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate because both her and Karen Berger who hired her, I've heard nothing but good things about what they've done with Vertigo and in comics in general. Yeah, absolutely. Uh it's just it's a crying shame. All right, we'll move on to our talking points here. Um I want to talk a little bit about representation because I feel like this is both a good and a bad point in this story. It's a good point in that there are many female characters. You have Captain Sawyer, you have Renee Montoya, you have Chandler, and then you have this new African-American woman, uh, Josie. I think her last name is MacDonald, although I don't think you get that in this story. I had to look that up. Um, and Montoya is Hispanic. Jo- and I said Josie and Sarge, who is also a character, are both African-American. And while these characters are well-written and empowered Um, the female characters at least face accusations about who they are sleeping with regularly in this story. And it's not done in a way to show that the male character who is joking or asking about it is being a bad character or is a bad police officer. These are regular police officers saying these things. And it struck me as this being as recently a story as it is 2003, that that was bad form to me. Like it didn't, it didn't feel like it was, I mean, maybe if he's going for a, a, a past era, that would make sense. But these stories have always kind of tread the line of, it has the noir aesthetic. It has that thirties and forties feel, but it's set in modern time. Well, I, I think that it's important to note that, you know, this kind of behavior isn't relegated to the past. This is something that still happens in this day and age. 
And I think in this case, it's Brubaker and Rucka showing specifically that the men that these women work with aren't particularly enlightened individuals. And I think that you have to draw a line of distinction between the author's voice and the voice of the character. And I think in this case, it's very much the latter, that they are trying to show the voices of these characters and show the things that these women need to deal with on a day-to-day basis, not in a moralizing, pointing this out like, hey, here's a thing, and this is how you should feel about it, but just allowing to be that to be part of the background radiation of the day-to-day lives of these characters, that this is something that they have to deal with, and letting the audience draw their own conclusion from that. I can definitely see what you're saying, but in a perfect world, I would have wanted the moralizing of, of that. I would have wanted someone to point out that, hey, that's not appropriate. You know, this person covers your back, you know, treat them like you would Sarge or, or something like that, you know. And I realize that could be preachy. I realize that's uh, it's not what they're going for. But it this is something I struggle with in that y- you don't want to come across as preachy, but you also don't want to enable and you don't want to give bad examples to people to latch onto and continue this behavior that is not appropriate. Yeah, you don't want it to feel normalizing. Yes. I, and I absolutely agree with that instinct. I guess my personal reaction was that it didn't. It just didn't particularly bother me because it felt true to the story and the kind of setting that they were depicting. It didn't bother me till it was like the third or fourth time with like the third or fourth different female character. Like I, I got it as kind of a setting, as you're saying, as kind of a setting piece the first or second time, and then the repetition of it is what irritated me. Yeah, and I'm absolutely willing to acknowledge that I'm maybe not necessarily the most sensitive person towards that type of of thing. It would be nice if we had somebody like Kit here to talk with us about this, because I know it's something that she is particularly sensitive to, and it's something she does think a lot about, so I really appreciate her opinion on it. Um. I don't know that I necessarily have a whole lot to say other than, yeah, it was it was absolutely a thing. Um, and, I, and I think that the individual reader can kind of decide for themselves whether it's a positive or negative for them in the story. Yeah, definitely. It, it just, for me, it came across as a negative, but a very slight negative. I just feel like as part of the platform that I have, I want to point that stuff out when I see it and just remind people that it's not okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm sure that Greg Rucka, having spoken with him and having hear, hear, heard him speak many times, would be the first one to agree with you. All right. Uh, we'll move on to our, our next topic. So we have the GCPD's love-hate relationship with Batman. And we talked a little bit about this in episode 144, um, but we get a lot more of it in this story. It's, it's one of those things that's building through through the series. And I love that we're seeing these stories only from the GCPD's side. I think it, it lends an era, era of mystery to it, of they don't know what Batman's doing. They don't know why he's making the decisions that he's making. It appears to them that Batman isn't doing enough, and police are dying because of it, but we really don't know because we aren't seeing what Batman is preventing. He's probably doing as good a job as he always does, which we see in other Batman stories. We just can't see it because of the focus of this book. 
Yeah, ultimately Batman is only one person and he can only be in so many places at one time taking care of things. And I think that this is a great illustration of the other side of a story beat that we see a lot, both with Batman and with characters like Spider-Man, where they're often at odds with the law. And you have the cops coming after them, often it seems unfairly like they're there so often they're dealing with all these crooks like you think that the cops would be on their side and give them a break and seeing it from the police's perspective of here's this guy the batman they don't know anything about him they don't know who he is what he does how he does it and he's running around and they're getting into all this trouble they're getting shot and killed and the batman is nowhere to be seen because they don't know what he's doing behind the scenes and that breeds a lot of anger and paranoia and ultimately leads to them going after Batman and it's really interesting to see this perspective on it where you're really identifying with the police and you're saying yeah it makes sense that they would go after Batman I mean I know in my head that Batman's a good person and it kind of sucks that they're going after him but from their perspective it makes sense yeah, I think that's that's very much highlighted in the the end of the soft target story, which is the first half of what we're covering, where um, detective I can't remember the detective's name, uh, Romy's partner, Nate Nate something, uh, he is in the building trying to rescue the reporter, mm-hmm. and the building explodes, and we don't know if he's okay, like every, or if everyone's outside of the building, and you see Batman swing down, carrying the reporter, and set her down and, and swing away, and we find that Nate is dead inside of, of the building. And we're given no explanation as to, was Batman unable to save both of them? I mean, that's pretty obvious an implication because of what we know of the Batman as, as the reading audience. But it, to the police... They don't know why he chose to save the reporter versus the the police officer. Uh, I mean, to them, it's it's he picked one person over another. They don't know any of the details, and he doesn't stick around as we've seen in other Batman stories to explain things to the cops. He has very few words with them and and leaves. So they're left wondering. Yeah, it's um, Nate Patton, by the way, is the name of the detective. Yep, I had the Nate part. Couldn't remember the Patton. Yep. Um, but yeah, this is a a perfect example of where seeing things from a perspective that isn't what we would think of as the normal protagonist in this case, Batman, like seeing things from not his perspective, you get such a different view on things, things that seem natural from Batman's perspective are incredibly suspicious from the police's perspective. One thing that I I would have found interesting that we don't get in this is is to have another book that parallels this and tells these same stories from Batman's perspective. So you could kind of put them side by side. And, you know, we, we obviously are getting a lot of how the police are seeing it from this tale. It would be interesting to see how Batman's seeing it from his side. I mean, I guess you could say we have... 3,000 stories of that, um, so we don't really need it. But I think that would be an interesting idea of yeah, no, co-publishing. I, I absolutely agree. Um, and that is exactly what I was going to say. Um, although I would have said 5,000 because that's always the number I pick out for some reason. 
Well, so someone asked what asked today on Facebook, a, a friend of, of mine, um, Mike Gillis, who hosts a couple of podcasts, Radio versus the Martians and Podcast of La Vista Baby about the wor- films of Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, what the most published character is in comics. And a lot of things are thrown out there. Judge Dredd, Batman, Superman. Um, I, I said possibly Archie because I know there's like a ton of the old Archie Digest stuff. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, well, I'm going to see, uh, I was at, uh, not at home with my massive digital library, so I couldn't do like a file count or anything. But uh, I, I went on to Wikipedia to see if I could figure out how many titles Batman's in. And the number that I came to, not including like Justice League and, and other things where he's not the main character, was 3,860 books. Wow. And that's that's books, not even individual stories. Individual issues. Individual issues. Because, I mean, it used to be the case that you'd have an issue that would be like 64 pages long, and that would have several stories in it. Yeah, I mean, that was including annuals and, and every, every issue that would have him in it. So, obviously, the first 26 detectives weren't included in that number. And that's probably a low estimate. Yeah. Um, to, to, to get back to what you were saying, though... Um, I think it would almost be a detraction from this story if we did see things from Batman's perspective. I think it's a strength of the story that Batman is not a character who we have any insight to. And to publish other stories that are set at the same time as these and seeing exactly where Batman is throughout these stories would only be a detraction. I don't know that it would add anything meaningful to the story. And... If anything, it would take something away where, you know, the police are paranoid about Batman and they don't know what he's doing and they see him walking away from the wreckage of this bombing. And then to get another story where it's like, yeah, I wasn't here because I was saving these 10 orphans and this nun. And yeah, I was here in this building, but I did these six things that actually helped you out, I think would only serve to demonize the police characters in these stories that we're identifying with. And in that sense, I think it would detract from our appreciation of this story and these characters. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that perspective. And I, I think that is probably the route that, that DC w- was taking on it, if they were even thinking about this at all. It's just me as a, a person who's who often is a completionist, kind of just want to see the other side, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely see and I respect that instinct. Um and I, I often love those stories um, like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead or there's a particular episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer called The Zeppo where it's like there's this big important story going on and it focuses on this one side character who's only sort of there and shows everything that they're doing behind the scenes. And that can be really interesting and really powerful. In this case, though, the, the, I feel like this already is that story. Like you've got all of these 4,000 Batman stories where it's Batman and the police are kind of there and they're running around doing things, but you don't really see what they're up to. And that's what we're seeing here. And so it would be this weird kind of reversal of a reversal. Yeah, I, I, I can definitely see what you're saying. It's just the, like there's not a specific Batman story that this is tied to like the one you're referring to with Buffy, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, in that case, in the the case of that particular episode, I don't think that there is a different episode where we see the other side of those events. But Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead would be a perfect example where it's kind of the backside of Hamlet. 
and you're seeing what these characters are doing in between the scenes that they're in in that play. And so you do have both sides of the story. I just find that fascinating. Obviously, if it got played out like a number of other things, I would no longer find it fascinating. But I think it's just the, it's more the novelty than anything. Yeah, I absolutely. Mean, they're probably absolutely correct to not give me that. It's just my curiosity was like, well, wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, this is something that Cade brings up a lot on View from the Gutters is I really wanted this. And I think in this case, and a lot of the times when Kate is asking for that on our show, the author wants you to want it. The wanting of it is the important part and the not getting it because whatever your imagination is spinning is going to be way better than whatever that author could come up with. And I'll give you the perfect example. Star Wars. I was going to go there because we have the prequel trilogy to me is that is like I had high hopes for the Clone Wars and for the Darth Vader story and what we got didn't live up to those hopes. And then I've heard this from a number of other people where like you look at the the classic trilogy, four, five, and six, and you can you pick a character and you go, I want to write a story about that. Well, the now Legends expanded universe kind of did that for almost every character. So for some people, it's like, I don't really care that... Biggs did this or that. or I, What he did in the movie is just fine. I don't need a story about Biggs. I don't need a story about Wooher, the bartender. You know, it's And for me, who that is my universe. That's the universe that I most identify with. I want all that stuff. You know, I don't care if it's excellent as long as it's not bad. I want to read it. And the, my, I have read it. And my God, is it bad? Uh, I used to have a copy of a book called Tales from Jabba's Palace. I have it in my bookcase. Okay, yeah, then you know. Um, but for our listeners, it's just about 10 or 12 different short stories about various characters who are seen in the background of Jabba's palace during Return of the Jedi. And this is set like shortly before leading up to when Luke arrives at the beginning of Return of the Jedi. And it kills so much that was good about that scene in that movie, this aura of mystery and you have all these interesting characters and you imagine all these interesting stories for them. And then you get a book that's telling those stories and no, they're not interesting. They're, they're just almost the same. Like everybody's planning to backstab everybody else. And it's just this weird pile up of, plots upon plots with murders and assassinations and all this and it doesn't add up to anything you know the the idea of this place with all of these interesting characters was far more powerful than the stories ever could be uh to to continue on this and, and offer a good example um the new canon that that they're making because they've said the legends is legends and it's not canon anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, Bloodline is a is at the time of recording a very new book by Claudia Gray and it takes place six years before The Force Awakens and in there you get Princess Leia's view on a number of scenes from the original movies and it adds an emotional pathos to it in addition to what we saw in the films, but it's small it's a it's a tiny addition so i feel like it's it's adding something without over explaining everything which is what a lot of the old eu stuff would do mm-hmm. and then they're mm-hmm. also doing the same thing in that book with alderaan because we never really got to know alderaan it was we knew it by it being blown up so they're doing little snippets of alderaan 
And one thing I hope that they do with this new canon is not give us a story that's in, that just explains all of Alderaan. Keep it that mysterious thing. Give us little snippets here and there, but keep don't don't ex- explore everything so that we have that little bit of mystery, that that intrigue. Yeah, I think that that's something that's very very easy to do. It just over-explain things and take all the mystery away. And I think it's a sign of a good writer that they're able to not tell you things and just leave it open. And not have it be a, well, it's like, well, I don't understand this, but I understand how this works, even if I don't know what it is or all the details regarding it. And I think that that's something that Gotham Central is really good at doing is giving you just enough of the Batman where even if you had never read a Batman story, I think you could appreciate kind of what the character is about, at least within the context of this story. Yes, it works for this story, but I, I'd say there there is definitely a human element to Batman that is not in this story, and that's something you get from a story like Batman Family that we we did uh, in August, where you get the the human element, the mentor, the father figure. Although at this point, Damien's not around to an actual son, but father figure to Nightwing and to Tim, and he, he's the paterfamilias. Yeah, the, and so the I'm head saying, of the family. I, I'm saying that that aspect is missing from this book, but it doesn't need to be in this book. So. Ex- and that's exactly what I'm saying as well. We we don't need it for this story, so don't give it to us. All right. Yeah, we'll uh, move on then. Uh, one thing they did give us that we didn't need, but is really interesting, is what they're doing with the bat signal. I mean, they're really painting it in a much different light than we've seen before. Um, it's used as a last resort and very, very begrudgingly. Like the, really the only time that it's immediately gone for is in soft targets when they figure out it's the Joker. Like that's really the only time that they're not second guessing using it, not trying to do it themselves and only fall back on Batman when they can't or when they run out of time. And I think it's hilarious that when they actually do go for it, Batman's already there and he's like, I know it's the Joker. Like they didn't even need to do that. And I think that that is really interesting. The the reversal of expectations, like this one time where they're like, no, we got to go for the bat signal. Like it's, it's the Joker. Like all the rules are off. Just do it. And Batman's already there. Like, I don't think that they even actually turn it on. I think the Joker they did because it, it gets out. shot out. Okay, yeah. So he shoots it out like a second after. Right. And Batman's already there. And he's like, it's the Joker. I already know. Like, it, it does a good job of building that tension and then immediately diffusing it in a way that just ramps up the excitement. Well, and just the fact that Joker set that as a trap for the police. I mean, that was an excellent idea. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, if if you read the Superior Spider-Man arc that came out a few years ago where, I guess, spoilers, uh, Dr. Octopus takes over Peter Parker's body and pretends to be Spider-Man for about a year. And in that series, J. Jonah Jameson sets up a spider signal, which Spider-Oc immediately smashes and goes, why would you set up this thing on this building that tells all of my enemies exactly where I'm going to be. Uh, which I think is a, a criticism that has been leveled at the bat signal often. And I think it's done well in this story where 
the Joker is specifically setting things up to lure Batman to this place by getting the cops to go for the bat signal. See, I didn't see it that way. I, I would see that any shot he got at the Batman in that aspect would have been an added bonus. Because I think that was strictly to go after the police. I don't think that much like him, the, he, him allowing himself to be captured is strictly so that he can take a shot at more children like he did in at the end of No Man's Land. I think when it comes to the Joker, it's impossible to know what's a plan and what's an improvisation. But I, I think that the idea that Batman would show up could not have been far from his mind. Oh, no. I, I'm sure he was expecting him to show up, but I don't think he... I don't think what transpired, which was Batman shielding them and preventing anything, anyone from being shot or, or hurt, was a surprise or a disappointment to him. I think that he was hoping to get the police, expecting Batman to, to jump in the way, but not really expecting to have any effect on Batman whatsoever. Again, I, I think that it's hard to tell, but I think that the Joker was specifically manipulating things to get Batman there. I think that that was part of his plan. And if he had managed to shoot the cops right in front of the Batman, so much the better. I think this might be more of that conversation we just had where we don't know because we're not, this isn't a story primarily about the Joker or Batman. It's about the GCPD. Yeah, absolutely. But I do, I do think that it is a really good use of the bat signal, which is, I think, an element of the Batman mythos that is often underappreciated, not just by the audience, but by the writers. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of times where we see it destroyed, as in this case. I mean, the one that comes to mind is, uh, is it Batman, the last Batman, Batman and Robin, when Bane rips it off the the GCPD? Oh, The horrible Bane? You mean the Dark Knight Rises? No, 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 the the Shoemaker one. Oh, the Schumacher one. I'm pretty sure that is Batman Batman and Robin. Because I I don't think it was forever. I saw that movie in the movie theater because it was like 96 degrees out and I just wanted to be somewhere where there was air conditioning. And then you watched a movie that's half about ice. Yeah, and well, that the reason that I stayed in the theater had nothing to do with the movie that was happening on the screen. I'll just put it that way. Yeah, so that is it, a, a rather hideous film. And I, I've never watched it again. So if you want to ask me about specific plot details from that movie... Oh, I'm just thinking of another all time... All I can say is that it was ice to meet you. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> Bad Arnold pun, which he had a ton of in that movie. Oh, I was just oh pointing out is that's another place where we see the the it's somewhat of a plot point where somebody's like, I'm going to take out the bat signal and bring Batman here. So, I mean, it, it is kind of one of those things, one of those things that maybe it's used very well here, but is maybe yeah. kind of something that is gone back to a number of times. Yeah, absolutely. And, Maybe I'm wrong. It doesn't like poison ivy or something like that. Put the Robin symbol on the bat signal instead to yep. try and drive. Oh my God. I can't believe I'm remembering this movie so bad. Yeah. Cause of the pheromone thing. She gets Robin uh, yeah, infatuated yeah, yeah, with her yeah, and makes yeah. the Robin. Yep. Yeah. Well, I, again, I think that that is not appreciating the full implications of what the bat signal is about. Like it's usually just used as, 
a plot device. Like, oh, how is Batman going to find out that something's going on? Oh, okay, well, we'll throw on the bat signal, which at this point should really be the bat text tone. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that as you were, you were talking about that as kind of a call to get him to that physical spot, whereas in, in modern telling, with all the technology we have, he should see it, reach out through comms, get a hold of the, the GCPD, get whatever information they're trying to give him, they shut the signal off, and he goes about whatever he's doing. He doesn't need to physically show up there anymore. Yeah, I mean, really, they should be tweeting, like, hey, Batman, can you meet us at the place that we set up for you to meet us, please? Just like, you know, hey, Batman, come and talk to us. No big light in the sky, no con- like phones to tap, just a general broadcast like, hey, Batman. The Bat Tweet. Again, though, it's like, well, then do the villains know to intercept the, the Well, that's the thing is that they know that the police want to talk to Batman. They don't know where. I mean, I guess presumably Gotham Central, but... I mean, that's not really any better or worse than the bat. No, I and it doesn't look as a, cool either. It's just a different way of, of, of it's it's just it's one of those things that shows that Batman is a character that has been going for 75 years. Yeah, we just had the 75th Batman anniversary and there are elements of this character and of his setting that have not aged as well as others. Yes, def- definitely, and I would say the bat signal the is giant, one of them. Yeah, the giant spotlight on the roof of the Gotham City Police Department. I mean, the only place you really ever see spotlights anymore is like on police cars and at airports. Or sometimes at grand openings. Yeah, I suppose. I just think of like in small towns, like my, like my dad lives out in a, in a small town, and when I'm driving up and it's night, I see the, the circling spotlights. I'm like, well, I can see the airport. <laughs> yep, yep. And they're always small airports. You know, the big airports don't need them. It, it, it was the same way where I was growing up. There was a very small airfield just outside of town. And on certain nights, you could see that spotlight going. It's like the airport version of a, of a lighthouse. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, let's move on to our next point here, which I found this very interesting. Probson's feud with Sawyer. Um, it carry over, carries over from In the Line of Duty, the, the story we covered in, in July. And... Man, does he have a grudge against against Captain Sawyer because she got promoted to captain and he's still a lieutenant. But it really makes them full fledged characters. I mean, it's it's another one of those subtle touches that just makes the characters pop off the page. Yeah, they really feel like real people. You know, they have lives that are going on, and those lives don't begin and end when they disappear or show up on the page you know they're still doing things and people hold grudges you know this is probably something that probson is not going to get over anytime soon and he's just going to be a little snotty towards her the entire like any time that they show up well he doesn't have much longer to be snotty because he dies in this story yeah i suppose that's true uh again referencing back to episode 144 there are so many characters in this book, it's sometimes hard to keep them all straight. Yeah, I mean, he uh, he made a mistake, and he paid for it. I mean, I think it was his decision to uncuff the Joker from the table when they were doing their uh, interrogation, and it ended up biting him. Yeah, well, it just goes to show you can never turn your back on the Joker. Yep. 
Speaking of other people who have a relationship, Montoya and Bullock, uh, we get a, in 19 through 22, we get a, a bit of exploration there. And this, this stuff, a lot of stuff that they're talking about is the events that happen in Officer Down. And then there's also a reference to Gotham Central 6 through 10, where uh, Montoya is outed as a lesbian. And Bullock read that or, or saw it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And his, he has a little back and forth with her about that. Um, but the stuff that happened in Officer Down, I mean, it, it's a really complicated situation without a clear, correct choice, because, um, as you mentioned with some of the law and order stuff, you know, you, you might have an episode where they know who did it, but they can't prove it. And so they can't convict him. That's what you have in Officer Down. And rather than let him get away, Montoya is going to go and kill him and Bullock stops her and does it for her without asking. Like, he just takes her out of the situation, informs the mob on them, he gets cement shoes, and then Bullock gets kicked off the force. Um, and so it's a really interesting story element that was in Officer Down and is having far-reaching consequences for, for Harvey Bullock. And I find that really great to see because, again great characterization for that character who's been around for uh, so many years. Yeah. Um, Bullock and Montoya both got their origins in the 92 Batman animated series where it was, you know, the fat lazy cop and the lady cop. And they were just kind of these background characters that were, you know, would show up anytime there was a scene with the police. And then over time they slowly began to gain na- you know, they got names and characterization and all that. But I think it's one of the greatest strengths of serialized storytelling that you can have character beats like this, where you had a character that's been evolving at this point when this is published for 10 years, first in animation and then in the comics. And you can really have a payoff like this that you can't get in something that's a one and done, like just a, a random movie or even, you know, a season or two of a TV show. Like you really have to have these characters running for years in and out of different series with different events and they go away for a while and they come back and you can have these really big character moments for them because the audience has been living with them for so many years. I mean, I think you get that in somewhat in uh, long running TV series, like uh, to bring back to CSI, my p- procedural of choice, there's a, big arc with Grissom and um, now I can't think of her name, but the the woman that he was having an affair with on, on the show, like they go through a huge arc over five, six, seven seasons and before until Grissom leaves, leaves the show, the actor leaves the show. And so, I mean, it, it can be done, but it's a lot harder to do. Yeah. And that kind of thing is rare. Like you really do need a series that's been going for seven or 10 years and have the writers and the producers really commit to developing a character like that where, you know, in comics, it's much more the case where an author will have a pet character and they're not reliant on having an actor who's there, who can show up or whatever. Like you can have a character who disappears for years and then comes back and it's like, oh my goodness, like, where you know where have they been all this time what have they been up to and we can really be, build these big character moments 
for them and not necessarily be reliant on having an audience that's followed this particular TV show for these years and had these character like had these actors in place that you have a lot more room for this kind of very long form serial storytelling. Yeah. And, and it's harder in the big two, um, especially with characters like these that are uh, side characters. You see that much more in independent comics, creator owned comics where they'll, they'll take characters and they'll write them up until the point that they have a set ending and that'll be the series. And you don't have to worry about crossover events interrupting their story and that sort of thing. But yeah, I think that is definitely a benefit to, to the medium and the amount of time that these characters interact over this period of time, you really get that Montoya and Bullock having been partners for a a number of those years really know each other. And Montoya, I feel like feel feels both pity for Bullock as well as contempt for his actions. And I think the contempt maybe more lies in the fact that he didn't give her a choice. He made the choice for her. Um, and, and that's kind of the, the question I'm... I think that, Can you tell from this story, not really being familiar with Officer Down? I, I have not read Officer Down, but I think I got enough of the context from the way they talk about it in this series... I think that there's something that you're missing there, which is the measure of guilt. She feels like it should have been her. She should have been the one to take that bullet. And the fact that Bullock took it for her, even though he didn't ask, and it has so utterly destroyed him as a person, I think that she feels guilty about that. And I think that that's mixed with pity and contempt. Um, But they're all kind of there and they're all kind of mixing together. And it creates a beautiful conflict. Oh, yeah. She, she just she doesn't know how to feel because all of these emotions are running through her all together. And I think that's something you've been praising kind of through a number of aspects of this series. And I think I agree with you the most on this one that it's a beautiful scene that you can read this so many different ways of Montoya, what she's going through, what she's thinking. And it's probably a little bit true of all of them. You know, and it's written in such a way that it, we don't get a clear answer. So your interpretation can be your view of it. My interpretation could be my view of it. And neither of us are, are technically right or technically wrong. It's just however we best feel the scene fits for the characters, that the, the pieces of the characters we're bringing to it that aren't explicitly stated by the authors. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Speaking of emotional brutality as that situation has that's in a lot of this series yeah um we have yeah. numerous deaths in the soft target story at least five one of which i don't know who it is because they jump from so you had the 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 commissioner the superintendent then uh um the wife who's a coroner of the wife of the the guy who died in the very first uh, issue, mm-hmm. who's a coroner, she gets like her hand blown off but doesn't die. Another coroner in that scene dies. So that's the three. And then they, like a couple pages later, say four people have died. And I don't know who that fourth person was. And then, of course, Probeson later in, in the story. So that's at least five people who are, are killed in this Joker rampage. And that's just that story. Well, after he kills Probeson, he's got a gun and he's running around in the police station. And I get the feeling that he 
gun down at least one person, if not more. Right. That's after the point where we're told four. Okay. That, that, that was when Probeson died was after that point. So, yeah, it's at least five. We don't know how many more cops he got while he was running through the police station. You're absolutely correct. Yeah, I'm just I'm flipping through really quick to see if I can get a better sense of who's getting shot here. And really, I mean, it's just it's a hail of shots. So presumably somebody else was shot during that scene. Right. So that would be six because there's still that fourth one that I'm assuming happened in that same scene with the coroners. It's just we don't right, see that, him. That's that's what I'm saying oh, okay. is that in the scene on the street where the coroner gets shot and the girl gets her hand shot that there's continuing to be gunshots that are going off throughout the scene and we don't necessarily see who's getting shot. Yeah. But presumably someone else was hit in there. But I mean these these losses really do hit home because these characters are so well written. I mean, you get it with uh when Patton died, Romy is a wreck for weeks. Uh Driver in the very first issue when his partner gets killed by Mr. Freeze, he it's just devastating to him. Yeah, you you absolutely you feel every single loss and it's a powerful element of the series and I think it's a testament to the art that it doesn't feel gratuitous or violence porny when these people die, but it really does feel impactful. Yeah, I get the the impression that these people legitimately care for each other besides just being coworkers. And I think that has a lot to do with being the bond of fellow policemen, but I'm sure that's not all of it. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there is actual deep connection just on a person-to-person level there as well. Well, you know, the bonds between police officers, in particular partners, is something that is always depicted as being incredibly strong, you know, as close, if not closer, than family. You know, so often you see police stories where you have partners who tell one another things that they don't tell their wives or their families or anybody else because I guess there's this feeling that other people wouldn't understand or wouldn't necessarily be able to bear the weight of that, that these partners rely on one another and they trust one another to support each other on a level that nobody else can really do. And so when partners betray one another or when one partner is injured or killed, it hits that much harder. Yeah, absolutely. It's like losing your other half because they, you know, they have to trust each other implicitly in order to do the job that they do. Yeah, definitely. One last thing I wanted to touch on with this point is there's a very powerful scene when Chandler, who's Romy is having coffee with Angie Molina, the reporter while Josie and driver have this conversation that we're reading and the scenes don't exactly match up. The dialogue doesn't fit with, with the images, but you can definitely get the tone of both conversations, even though we're not hearing the uh, Molina and Romy Chandler conversation, that they're both scenes of sadness, and they just really do juxtapose well with each other, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I thought that was something unique to this story. We hadn't seen that yet in the Gotham Central book. It's something you you see a number of times in movies and television uh, where the one character is talking while other uh, 
action is being depicted visually. Yeah, that kind of juxtaposition can be difficult to do, but it's almost always incredibly powerful, especially when they're doing it asynchronously, where you see events and then you're being given another stream of information, either text boxes or a voiceover or whatever. And you think that these things are happening at the same time. And then at the end, you kind of find out, no, they're not. Actually, one of these things has already happened. And that can be incredibly powerful. And I think that it's done well here where it would be very easy for it to be confusing or for things just not to sync up, I guess. I mean, I I, I agree with you. It's a really good story or not element um story mechanism i'm trying to think of the right word yeah mechanism choice not 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 mechanism but um device Mm -hmm. storytelling device right and that's the device he chose to use i I think we're on the same page just using different terminology yeah no absolutely yeah uh well that was the last thing that i had um if since there's nothing nothing further we wanted to talk about uh we will move on to our rating here I'm I'm still kind of in the same boat I was after the first Gotham Central story, and I think it has a lot to do, as I said on, on that recording, with my expectations of the story. Because I have, again, with Soft Targets, heard that as one of the best Joker stories ever. But to me, it wasn't. And I can point to a number of different Joker stories that I found way more compelling, way more interesting about the specific character of Joker not necessarily police's interaction with Joker, which I'm sure is what they're going for with this story, but it just didn't seem to wow me as a uh, as a Joker specific story. And and I definitely agree with you on that point. I would by no stretch of the imagination call this the best Joker story that's ever been written, but I do think that this comic stands out as unique both in the Batman canon I think in DC Comics, especially for the time period, and in the superhero universe, multiverse as a whole, I don't think that there's anything that's quite like this series. And I think that that makes it exceptional in my book. Uh, I'm going to rate this a Jim Gordon out of five. So five out of five? Yeah. All right. Um, You don't get higher than Jim Gordon. This is true. I love Jim Gordon. He is a great, great character. Um, I'm going to go with four again, just, I, I, I see what they're doing and I, I recognize the uniqueness. It, it's like, it's like my relationship to Watchmen. I can tell it's important. I can tell people love it. I don't love it. So, I mean, yeah, I, I can definitely see where you're coming from. In this case, I think that I did love it. And part of that I think is because I generally don't like stories like this very much. And I did like that one. And so it make it raises it in my estimation on that basis alone. But I could definitely see if you didn't enjoy it on a visceral level, that it would be good, but not great. And I, and I very much still enjoy this because I enjoy the genre, but I feel like it is good in the genre, not great in the genre. Right. And I, I think that that's what I'm saying is that because I'm not as familiar with the genre, I have less things to compare it to, if that if that makes sense. It, it does. Um, I I can't remember which story it was, but there was one that Dylan and I were covering, probably for our reactions. Where it's like, I don't really like this type of story, but I like this story. So I can definitely understand where where you're you're coming from. Um, but 
that gives us our average of four and a half out of five batterings since I had a four and you had a five. And we will move on here to let you guys provide us with your opinions. So if you go to the page this the page for this episode on thebatmanuniverse.net, you can leave your thoughts in a comment and we will read them on an upcoming episode. And uh, let us know what you particularly enjoyed about Gotham Central and these particular two stories uh, that we covered today. And while you're there at thebatmanuniverse.net, you can read the in-depth comic reviews, listen to other podcasts that they offer, and get all of your Batman news. It's a one-stop shop for all things Batman. And next month will be Batman Broken City. Uh, That will be the title that will be covered next month. Uh, We'll leave you here with the credits. Um, Gotham Central, this was issues 12 through 15 and 19 through 22. December 2003 to March 2004 for the first half, and July to October 2004 for the second half. This series was written by Ed Brubaker with Greg Rucka on issues 12 through 15. It was drawn by Michael Lark with Stefan Gaudiano on issues 19 through 22. And it was edited by Nachi Castro and Matt Idelson. Yeah, Nachi being the assistant editor. Yes. Um, Thank you guys for listening and join us next time for Batman Broken City. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Oh, if you'd like to hear more of what we do, um, myself and Dylan, who's the regular co-host of this show, have our own pod or another podcast called Arc Reactions, which can be found at arcreactionspodcast.blogspot.com, which is where we cover much in the same format we do here, uh, comic book story arcs from all comics, Marvel, DC, independent. If it's interesting, we'll cover it. And uh, Tobiah, why don't you tell the folks about your podcast? So I am producer and co-host on View from the Gutters. View from the Gutters is a weekly roundtable discussion. In each episode, we focus on one graphic novel or, or one collected volume of a series as selected by one of our hosts. We discuss the week's topic work with frequent digressions and respond to any listener comments or questions. We have covered books from all across time and space as related to comics, from superheroes to noir, horror and fantasy, science fiction, and everything in between. So if you have a favorite book or genre, we've probably talked about it. And as you mentioned when we talked about uh, the Maltese Falcon, uh, the Parker novels is one where they really dive into noir stories. So if you like that noir aspect, if that's what draws you to Batman, I highly recommend checking out their episode about the Parker novels. Yeah, it was episode, uh, I want to say 162 or thereabouts, where we talk about Darwin Cook's adaptations of the Parker books. Yep. So thank you guys for joining us and join us next month for Batman Broken City. Bye, everybody.